oh, well, I only won because there was like four people here. And that might be a fact that there was only a few people there, but those types of thoughts and just a lot of it starts to compound. Mm -hmm. um, and I know like, like, I branch into a lot of different areas, but I really do think like some of it is, some of it's internal. And I see some people that have struggled with it their whole lives. I see other people as they're getting older, as they're kind of getting more exposed to just like society, <laughs> thinking a little bit more and getting some of that, there's definitely more of a shift in like, how do I fit into these spaces and how does that impact how I see myself? This is Strength in the Details, a podcast that goes beyond the classic debate on reps, sets, and exercise programming and focuses on aligning what matters most in your training, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle. I'm your host, Dr. Anaja Newsom, founder of Optimize Strength. I'm a PhD with a focus in the exercise and health sciences, a coach, and weightlifting athlete. With more than a decade of professional experience in sport and fitness, I truly believe that the impact of mental skills, motivation, and self-efficacy are often overlooked and underappreciated in exercise behavior change, sport performance preparation, and everyday coaching practices. You deserve to feel strong in the gym and beyond. And on this podcast, we dive in to the mental aspects of exercise, training, and sport performance. So join me as I invite industry experts, elite athletes, and coaches, and researchers to a conversation about the gritty details. Confidence as an athlete is an undervalued yet impactful factor in sport performance. There are so many sources of confidence and self-efficacy, and in this episode, I talk through these concepts with Shannon Mulcahy. Shannon is a sports psychology consultant and is passionate about helping athletes reach their potential in sport and life. She's the founder of Mulcahy Performance Consulting, based in Columbia, Maryland, but works with athletes and coaches worldwide. With a Master's of Science in Sport and Exercise Psychology and experience working with endurance athletes, coaches, and even the U.S. Army, Shannon gives us a perspective on the importance of sports psychology in training and in competition preparation. This episode includes some key skills and even resources for athletes to grab to improve their own mental performance. I'm very excited to share this conversation with you, so let's get to it. Welcome back to another episode of Strength in the Details. I'm your host, Dr. Anaja Newsom, and I am here with Shannon Mulcahy. I'm really excited. She is a, an expert in sport performance and sport psychology and exercise psychology, and I'm really excited to have her on to really share some really important information and her expertise and experience in helping athletes understand um, how the psychological impacts uh, their performance, because I think that there's an intricate connection tied there. So Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Well, start off by just telling us about you and how you got into this space a little bit. Yeah. So as you said, I'm a sports psychology consultant, and I really found this industry because I needed a sports psychology consultant. Um, so my background is as a swimmer. I grew up swimming competitively and I, I think it was like sophomore year of high school. I was just having like, I, at this point would say it was like anxiety, borderline panic attacks before swim meets. And 
I like, I didn't know what that was. I thought, you know, you get nervous, but like, what's going on here. And a lot of people around me didn't know how to help or what, you know, what to say, what to do. And then I finally talked to my coach about it and he was like, Oh, you should talk to a sports psychologist. Like here's a book on sports psychology. And it just, it really just opened my mind to like, this is a whole industry. This is a whole thing that people go to school for. They study. Um, and I just, after I read the book that he gave me, it's called Mind Gym. I don't remember who the author is, but it's a really easy read. I basically read that book and then was like, I'm going to make a career out of this. I love this. And so I just kind of stayed with it. And long story short, we're now here. Awesome. Um, how can people readily access a sports psychology consultant and what type of coaching or what type of relationship does that entail? Yeah, so sports psychology is an amazing field. It is also, I, I want to say relatively new. I, I don't know that it's necessarily new, but I think in, it, in terms of it being popular and widely accessible, it's relatively new, kind of like how strength and conditioning, like access to some of those types of coaches didn't used to be super common in like the 90s and stuff. And now it's a lot more common. Um, so sports psych is still a little up and down, I will say, in terms of like whether you can find somebody or not. But the really cool thing that COVID has allowed is that it's a lot easier to connect with sports psychology professionals via Zoom. So that is really amazing. And there's a website called the, I forget what the actual like website is, but it's the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. And they have on their website, you can find uh, professionals in your area that are certified through ASP. That's our like governing body. Um, it's not required that a sports psychology consultant or sports psychologist is certified through ASP. So to kind of, I know I'm going to give you like a somewhat lengthy answer on this, but you don't have to have that certification to be a professional in the field. It does help because what we're seeing now is with the, the like popularity of Instagram is a lot of people are just like, I'm a mindset coach and they have no credentials. I know that's something I have personally even run into with like connecting with teams is that people will say like, oh no, we're working with someone. And the person they're working with is basically, you know, it was like a former baseball player who's like, oh, I used to get nervous. So like now I am a mindset coach. So there are a lot of people who just decide <laughs> that this is like their career. Yes. So my, my personal like soapbox on this is like definitely look for what their credentials are and just that they have some formal training in sports psychology. Um, I will say, so I don't just take up all the time on this. Like if you have questions on whether someone's qualified or not in your area, like I'm fine if people want to reach out and email me and ask or something, because it can be a little murky in figuring that out. But sports psychology professionals can work with athletes in an individual basis where that's a lot of my work. I work with people one-on-one -on -one and it's over Zoom and it's just kind of like figuring out what's going on with them, what some of their performance limiters might be. For a lot of my athletes, it is a lot of like, race anxiety, lack of confidence is a big one across all sports. Um, so it's very specific to like what's going on with you. But then also we work with teams, we work with organizations, we work with like businesses, the military, whole wide range of stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. I'll make sure that I um, include your information in the show notes so that if someone is looking for that type of resource or wants to connect, they'll be able to do so. Um, so you, you mentioned that you were a former swimmer. What sports are you working with right now most frequently and, and what kind of sports do you enjoy working with um, in this field? 
Yeah, so I typically work, or I guess I should say most frequently work with what I would say endurance athletes. So it falls somewhere, somewhere in the categories of like swimmers, triathletes, cyclists, runners, mostly just because that's where my personal background lies the most in. So I, I know those sports the best. I have connected with the most people in that, uh, in those areas, but I've actually enjoyed working the most with, I worked with a fencing team um, while I was in grad school during one of my internships. That was really, really amazing because it was so different from anything that I had ever personally experienced. You don't fence in the water. Like that's so, it's just completely different. Um, so that was super cool. Um, I've personally worked with pretty much, well, I, can't, I probably can't say all sports because there's a lot of them, but I've worked with a lot of the like major sports. And what I like is actually that they're also different. Like I like the comfortability of working with, you know, the endurance athletes and I find it probably the easiest, but it's also a really fun challenge trying to learn and understand a new sport and like understand their lingo and how their mindset works. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I got into this because I love understanding how our mind works. So that's kind of, I get really nerdy about it. <laughs> I can see your face lit up when you started talking about it. Um, so I wanted to kind of jump into some of the specifics. Um, on this podcast, we talk a lot about performance and how to get the most out of your performance. Um, and we're not talking, you know, exercise sets and programming and things like that. I, I feel like that debate is is ongoing and the science always tells us something different. Um, and at, at the end of the day, to each his own, right? But what are some things that you find from a psychological standpoint that are barriers to sport performance, whether it be strength athletes or endurance athletes, team or individual sports. Uh, could you share some of um, some of those psychological barriers that you're seeing? Yeah, it's it's probably the most like common and obvious one, but I really do think confidence is is probably the biggest. And I know we tend to look at confidence, and it's kind of almost this abstract thing, and it's this word that like, again, going back to like social media, like everybody talks about, like, I help people, you know, become more confident. And like, what does, what does that look like, I guess, but we, we've all at some point struggled with confidence. And whether that's like, do I, do I feel like I belong in this gym? Do I feel like I belong in this team? Am I good enough to be at this swim meet? There's, and it, I will say confidence kind of does bleed into like self-esteem and some other things for ease, you know, ease of conversation. I love a lot in with confidence, but stuff related to confidence and self-belief is probably at the root of most people's just what's going on with them with performance. Like even people, you know, with race anxiety, a lot of that's a lot of what's underneath that is a lack of confidence, a lack of self-belief. Uh, so that's where a lot of stuff kind of stems from. And like, it, it ties really closely with self-talk and how we're talking to ourselves. So I look at those two as being really interconnected and not really something that you can separate because it's really hard to have high levels of confidence and then have a pretty negative self-talk. Like those don't really go together. Um, so that's something that's like probably for every single athlete, every, honestly, even human, like no matter what your performance is, even if it's at work or like with your spouse, with your partners, just that like performance in the sense of showing up and being your best self, how you're talking to yourself, how you're thinking about yourself and like your just belief about your ability to do those things is huge. Do you, is there something that you would connect to maybe that being the biggest limiting belief that you see or the biggest barrier that you see? Like, where does that stem from um, is that environmental or is that something that is intrapersonal to athletes? 
Mm, that's a good question. I know in a lot of a lot of my work, I will say I work a lot with um, like women in sports. I do work with some men, but I do see a lot of women um, as they're getting older. I definitely see like somewhere in around like the high school age, I start to see a little bit of a shift from from maybe girls having confidence to starting to see other girls and women and like how they're talking about themselves and their bodies and kind of some of this societal conditioning around confidence in women. And I think there is like an environmental piece there. Mm -hmm. I know, especially in, I would imagine this is similar in like strength and other, other sports, but I know I see this a lot in endurance sports where like women are a minority. Like I've been to bike races where there might only be like four women and there's hundreds of men. And not that that is like the answer or like the, you know, the reason or the cause with that, but there it's easy to have some element of a, like, I don't belong. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be here when there's such a small, small percentage of you there. Um, and then, you know, you'll hear people making comments like men have flat out made comments. They'll be women saying like, oh, well, I only won because there was like four people here. And that might be a fact that there was only a few people there, but those types of thoughts and just a lot of it starts to compound. Um, and I know like, like, I branch into a lot of different areas, but I really do think like some of it is some of it's internal. And I see some people that have struggled with it their whole lives. I see other people as they're getting older, as they're kind of getting more exposed to just like society, (laughs) thinking a little bit more and getting some of that, there's definitely more of a shift in like, how do I fit into these spaces and how does that impact how I see myself? Right, right. Um, I've definitely seen that a lot um, shift with the the prevalence of social media, and I know I talk about that a lot on yeah. on my podcast. But you know the the access that we get to the highlight reel or the very best versions of other people can sometimes play into that. Um, and I, and I also work with you know youth athletes and younger athletes as well, and so I can kind of see that shift as as they enter that high school or you know even young adult phase as well. Um, is confidence, does confidence show up any way in particular in training or performance, whether it be um, high levels of confidence or low levels of confidence? How does that impact physical performance, if, if at all? Yeah, so I will always like preface everything with it's, it's it kind of depends. Everybody's a little bit different, but there is a point at which how you're thinking is impacting how you're feeling emotionally and like how your body is responding. So I know like I'll a lot of times give people examples of even just something simple, like, you know, your alarm clock goes off in the morning, the thought you have, the first thought you have is going to then impact, you know, what comes next. So if when your alarm clock goes off and your thought is something like, I'm really tired, which kind of tells you how you would physically feel, but it's really hard to feel energized when you're telling yourself, I feel tired. Mm -hmm. So like sometimes just even the thoughts we're having is, are going to impact how we're feeling physically. I know I see this a lot with runners when they're like, you know, in the middle of a run or something like, and I would, I mean, I'd imagine it's the same for a lot of other sports, but you know, you're out there and you're like, Oh, like I'm getting tired. Like, I don't want to do this. I want to stop. And then all of a sudden you start noticing right after those thoughts that like your legs start feeling really heavy and your pace Mm -hmm. slows down. And a lot of people don't really see that connection that the thoughts 
caused or strongly impacted or influenced like that physical reaction and response they'll be like oh yeah I thought this and like turns out I was right like (laughs) I'm not seeing that maybe that that's impacting that Mm -hmm. um so I, I always tell people to just get really curious like when you have a bad day of training look at look at where your head was at look at what your thoughts were and kind of try to journal them out jot them down even to just gain the clarity around how certain statements are going to impact that that workout that day because it is always like really really specific to each individual but sometimes being confident it doesn't show up in the maybe more traditional way that we think of the person who's like I got this I'm right you know and like I I don't know but like it, it can be very different and you being your most confident might be you're relaxed and you're calm and you just know that you're ready to go and outwardly it I mean, nobody can really tell, but when you're clear on what confident looks like to you and you're clear on, you know, what types of mindset, what type of thoughts, what types of emotions help you perform at your best and at your worst, you can start to navigate, okay, well, what, what do I need more of? What do I need less of? Shannon, I wanted to kind of pivot into this idea of comparison and like comparison to ourselves comparison to others in the sport and what types of impact that might have psychologically for athletes. Do you have experience with that? Yeah, definitely. Personally and professionally, for sure. Um, And something actually that I, I think it was in grad school that I read this, that like, it is normal. It is very normal human behavior to compare yourself to other people whether that's yourself or other people, just to compare, like that is very normal and not necessarily and always bad. That I thought was very helpful, especially as someone who actually did run into issues when I was competing with, like I was comparing myself to everybody, everybody, myself, like it was, it was rough. Um, But knowing that that wasn't something that was 100% bad, because there is a lot of talk about how it's harmful and detrimental and it for sure can be. And most of the time it, it is. Um, but th- I think the more we hear that things are like bad or things that we shouldn't do, the more our brains resist. So even just being like, no, this is kind of normal. It might not be productive, but it's normal. That definitely kind of made, uh, it made me feel a little bit better in the, in the moment hearing that, but it, it's really, really tricky. I know I see athletes who will be super happy with how a race went or how a performance went. And then they see how like their training partner did or their teammate did. And all of a sudden they're like, oh no, like I didn't have a good race or it wasn't good because they're solely basing it off of somebody else. And so it, it, it really is like a massive work in progress to have to, to navigate those things, especially when it comes to teammates or people that you are close with, because then it can start to impact your relationship with that person. So that's like a whole other, a whole other level there. Yeah. But I, I try to have athletes get really clear on what the objective and the goal is for that performance, like whether it's just a training run or an actual race and trying to look at the data almost like a scientist so they're trying to remove emotion and just trying to look at just what the numbers are and get really clear on all of that before they're letting themselves really pay attention to what their emotions are because sometimes they're thinking like I didn't do good enough or someone I can't think of great examples right now but you know they have some type of like story in their head about how it went based on other people 
And sometimes when they zoom back out and they're like, oh, actually this is, these are the numbers. Like this is the pace that I held. And maybe they realize like they didn't get a great night of sleep or when they set their PR back a while ago, they're able to see that maybe they were not in a super busy like season of life. And now they got close to their PR but they're in a much different, you know, much different season of life that has a higher stress load, which is going to impact their performance. So they're maybe able to now go, oh, actually that that's maybe not as bad as what I was originally thinking. The story in our mind is going to always impact how we feel about our performances. So that's like a big area that I start with with athletes on comparison. What tools would you give to someone who is looking to you know, comparison is normal. That's what you're sharing with us. What tools would you have to maybe make that comparison a little bit more productive? Yeah. So I, I'm trying to think of specific examples. So I, like, again, I know with, um, with a lot of the sports that I work with, I'll have them really clearly just write out things like, you know, if it's like, say it's a 5k, we might write out like, what was your, what was your time? Like what was your finish time? What were your mile splits? We like get very clear on like all of what that data is. Mm-hmm. Um, and just even sometimes the process of writing out that data kind of helps start shifting their mind without it being, without even them being prompted. Mm-hmm. So that's like, I typically will look at just kind of the general and basics of data. Cause I never want someone to go like off the deep end of analyzing every single, like you can for sure overanalyze data. Um, but again, I naturally just harp on that, but that in itself can be a really, it's like a grounding thing because you're just looking at numbers and you're, you're not thinking about necessarily what they mean when you're collecting them when it's more so in the moment. Cause that for sure happens like when we're out doing the thing and we see somebody else or we're thinking in those moments, that's where it can be helpful to have some type of like reframe that you can use especially if you know that you're a person who falls into that comparison trap or like there's a certain competitor or person that you know you compare yourself a lot to and having having a thought beforehand so like before you go into that workout knowing hey when I start comparing myself or thinking that you know I wish I was as strong as I was you know, six months ago or two years ago, having a thought that you can use to, you know, replace that more negative thought, having that before you go into the moment, because when you're in it, right, when you're in it and you're feeling crappy about yourself, it's really, really hard to be like, I'm going to change my thought and think more positively. No, your brain does not really want to do that. So kind of having like a plan in advance of when this happens, here's where I'm going to shift my focus. Here's how I'm going to reframe my thought that it just doesn't leave your brain much to do. You're like, I already did the task for you. You don't have to think in unproductive ways right now. Like I already did your job. It makes it a lot easier. That's so good. That's such a good task to, to do beforehand. Um, and I, you're right because, you know, sometimes we're like, think more positive, but when you're in the middle of thinking negative, it's hard to figure yeah. out what positive is, right? Because mm-hmm. when we're in that moment, everything seems like that is the reality and that is that's what's happening and that's our truth in the moment and so it is hard to shift those negative thoughts in the moment um I also like the tool that you talked about writing down numbers I'm a I'm a I'm a data person I'm a quantitative data person give me numbers or it didn't happen um for the most part um so I I really kind of gravitate or resonate with that sentiment 
Um, and one thing that I've done recently is going into competition. Um, if I have someone that is being challenged with performance anxiety or lack of confidence um, or that, that comparison, I'll actually have them journal what will make a good competition for you. What needs to happen even before you go into stepping on that platform, before you touch a barbell, before you cross the start line, what is it, you know, let, let, let's identify two or three things that really need to happen for you to feel like this was a good, this was a good race. This is what I'm comparing my outcomes to. And that way, when it's all said and done, we, we can refer back to those very grounded, very objective data points and say, well, did this happen? Yes or no? Did this happen? Yes or no? And, you know, sometimes that turns out really, really good because when, you know, when we do what we want to do and the performance goes well, then everything is great. But um, it it leaves little room for us to then go back and say, well, such and such did this. And, you know, but but this was okay for you before we started the performance, right? So like, why isn't it okay now? And I think that that's been really helpful. Um, and, and so I, I'm glad that we were on the, the same page there when it comes to like using that as a tool. That's really good. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, Shannon, you talked a little about confidence. Um, I want to shift to self-efficacy. And we know that confidence and self-efficacy is a little different. Um, in sport, being repetitive and doing the thing over and over again and building confidence and reassurance in that thing that you can overcome obstacles is the definition of self-efficacy. So it's a little more in-depth than confidence. Um, what, what are some things that you're seeing around just maybe someone has confidence overall, like in life about who they are as a person, but like they're missing this one thing when it comes to their sport. Um, can you talk about that if you've had any experience for, you know, like how that might shake out? Yeah, so, and I do like that you, you did separate that. I often don't because a lot of people just see it as confidence and they're like, what <laughs> so like it yeah <laughs> it's one of those things that like sometimes like the more like academic in me is like it's like do you use the word imagery or visualization they're not the same but like what do people hear so like yes absolutely um it, it yeah with with things like self-efficacy it's it does differ I will say per sport um like based on what research typically shows it, it's fairly similar but it I think to some extent there's a difference in certain sports where like your previous experience and having done something in the past is going to impact it more um, compared to other forms of like building self-efficacy. We know that typically having done it in the past is like the greatest or the, you know, the easiest way to build that self-efficacy and knowing whether that's that you've done it, like done the task itself in training or in preparation, you've run that time before you've cleared that obstacle. So like I work with a lot of mountain bikers and so that's something for them where like riding over a log, if you've never done it before, it's really hard to trust that you're going to be able to do it because you don't have that piece of I've done this before. So it's some of the times it's getting a little bit creative and like, okay, but have you ridden over something that's of a similar skill level? Have you ridden over a rock or something that even if like a rock and a log are not the same thing, if it's the same size, you can have some more amount of, of that belief that you can do it. So you're like, well, it was, it was pretty close, but we also know that self-talk is really big persuasion from even just like coaches, other people around you, like letting them know, 
like the coach letting the athlete know that they can do it. And that's something that's very underrated that I see all the time is a lot of coaches like aren't telling the athletes just like, Hey, I believe in you. And I know that they're maybe not necessarily saying like that statement, but variations of you can do this. I believe in you. Like you are ready for this. I think a lot of coaches think that like the athlete will know that the coach believes that they're ready because they're the one training them. But even just hearing that is really, really huge in building, building that confidence and self-efficacy. Another really cool one actually is seeing other people of like a similar ability level complete the task. So that's really cool for things. It's kind of similar to like mountain biking, but I know even with things like Ninja Warrior and stuff. So like somebody seeing somebody else do it and then you go do it, it feels a lot easier because you just saw them, saw them do it. And especially when that person's of like a similar ability level. So if it's your training partner that you've been training with like all season and you see them go do something, it's a lot easier for your brain to say, oh, well, we can do that too, because you know that you're at a similar fitness or ability level as that other person. So that's, that's a really cool one. Yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't even think about that. Like that ties into the entire, like, you know, training environment and like what type Mm -hmm. of environment, what type of training partners you're choosing to work with. Um, so let's, let's jump into that. Um, what type of psychological components are you seeing are most productive to building positive training environments or training partnerships or relationships? Yeah. So what's definitely interesting for me and working a lot with endurance athletes is a lot of them train by themselves. So that's a very interesting thing for like people that I work with most often, but at the end of the day, like it sounds like kind of silly, but I feel like being happy and like enjoying the people you're around is probably the most important. Um, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, if the people around you are causing you stress, making you constantly compare your, like, it's just mentally draining being around people or that environment. Like that has the largest impact on your performance because it changes your relationship with what you're doing, right? If you're going into like some type of environment and you don't like it for some reason, you're now not enjoying the task at hand as much. So kind of beyond all of the more like complicated, fancy things, like find people that you like to be with and that make you happy and that make you want to like keep coming back and working hard. That is huge. Um, But also like, I don't know. There's a lot out there about training with people that are, you know, of a similar ability level as you, but also it can be really helpful to be with people that are a little bit better at the sport than you, whether that's they're faster, they're stronger, whatever that looks like, Mm -hmm. because you want to be at their level, right? You see them and you're like, oh, like I need to work a little bit harder so I can keep up with that person, especially if it's something like a run where you will quite literally like fall behind. (laughs) You can't just like catch up immediately. Um, But also like there is a lot of research that shows that if you're training with people that are quite a bit above your ability level, you're going to start to feel poorly about yourself. And you're, instead of seeing your PRs and your successes as good, you're just looking at the gap to how far ahead they are. Mm -hmm. So that's something to be mindful of just like, I think it's fine if within the group, there's some people that are quite a bit above your ability level, but I do see a lot of like social media messaging, like find the fastest people or the strongest people around and like go train with them. Like that's not always going to (laughs) work. Yeah. I think that, I think that having the proper mindset to be able to train with folks that are, you know, more advanced or more skilled 
I think that's a mindset in itself to really be able to hone in on like, you know, that's great. And I can cheer them on and also be okay with where I am. Like I can have something to aspire to. I call it looking out of your peripheral vision. Like you can see them and you can cheer for them. And you can like kind of look up to them, but you also are looking straight ahead at what's going on in front of you and appreciating that. And I think, you know, sometimes we have younger athletes getting into sport that that's hard for them to do. Um, and, and also like, I, I really do love social media and I don't want people to think that I don't, <laughs> I think it's great, but I also know that there are some detriments out there. I think because I've witnessed it personally, like people don't post everything that they're doing. They just post the PRs. They just post the successes. You know, I've never seen, uh, I haven't seen people often post the highlight reel of the failed attempts or, you know, the, the races where they came in 10th place. Um, so it's hard, it, but when people see only the successes, it, especially as a younger athlete coming into sport, it's, it's really hard to to kind of understand those differences or appreciate or value the amount of work that they put to get to where they are. Um, and I think that that is a really important distinction that you've made about the training environment. And I think that that's really important. So if you're listening to this, make sure that you go back and understand like where your training is important. And that environment is so critical to how you compare yourself, the confidence, the self-efficacy that you may have, and you know just kind of where you see yourself going. And I know coaching has a lot to do with that, right? Um, what role does the coach play in creating or sustaining um, an ideal environment from a psychological standpoint? Yeah, the coach, I think, plays more of a role than a lot of people realize. Um, and I, I do think it definitely differs in terms of whether that coach is an in-person coach and it's someone that you are going to, whether it's like, you know, you go to swim practice or you are just at a gym training with a coach and like with other people versus again, it with a lot of like triathletes and runners, their coaches are online and they're getting their workouts just like via, via some type of software system. And so the communication with that coach is going to be very limited, mostly over text or something, you know, it's, it is different based on like what that relationship looks like. And I just say that because it is a lot harder to create create a certain type of environment when you're not really ever in person engaging with with that person. Um, and to some extent, I think you have to work even harder as a coach to create that environment when everything is behind a computer. I think sometimes those coaches are like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's not a team thing here, like whatever. But you have to be a lot more intentional with the words you use and like getting that message across. Um, so I will say that. But it's even if we're adults our coaches matter a lot and like everything that they say and do like we hear it's literally the same thing as like if you're coaching little kids and you're like okay like they're gonna hear and see everything that you do and say like make sure you're talking in a certain manner and like you know it so I've a swim team that I was with recently one of the little girls was making a comment about like her body and that was I think she was like six or seven years old and was like already saying she was fat and all this stuff and the coach was had to very quickly like jump in and start you know, navigating that situation. Um, but it was kind of interesting, some of like, just watching that interaction and how the little girl, I think just when the coach was like, why, like, why are we saying this and doing something about it for that little girl? That was, I think the first time that an adult had been like, don't say that. And like, or not, you know, it was not, not as blunt as just don't say that, but like, kind of like, wait a minute, like, this is maybe not a healthy relationship. Um, 
and so it's it's a lot easier and a lot a lot more obvious when it comes to little kids to see what that impact and that relationship is but I don't think we realize as adults like we still want the approval of our coaches we still want their encouragement we still want their support and like I think it's great that there's more and more coaches now who are saying things like and I might not totally agree but like you know if there's I'm a tough love coach versus I'm a more compassionate coach and I'm not I have my own thoughts on tough love, but like, at least they're acknowledging, like, this is the type of coach that I am. Is this helpful for your style of being coached and being able to like work with that person and what that relationship is? Because again, kind of like the environment, you can start to really not like your sport if you don't love your coach that much, or if that, if you're not getting what you need from them. And even if it is just like a high five and you're like doing great, like that might be what you need, but that's going to that might make you that might make your whole day versus the coach who just doesn't send that little like emoji or something it can be as simple as that. What are some things that coaches can really hone in on if you had to name one or two things um, that coaches can actively bring to and, and I guess we let's talk about an in-person environment um, from a psychological or from a mental skills performance. Um, what can a coach bring to that environment to help their athletes. Yeah. So I, I always start with their own attitude and energy and just how they're carrying themselves in, in that space, in that, like, if, if a coach is showing up to, to an in-person training and they're really negative, they're really down, they're really stressed. And those are like, not to say that a coach can't bring true life stress and has to be like super like positive and peppy and happy all the time. Like that's not realistic, but understanding that even just the energy that they bring and their attitude is going to affect everybody else around. We see that with teammates. We see that with coaches. Um, and again, I think a lot of coaches just don't think about like how their own attitude that day is going to impact other people. So that's like always step one that I unfortunately have to work with a lot of coaches on. Um, but then also like, what's the specific language that you're using? Um, again, people hear what you say, there's ways to phrase things that are going to be a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more productive mm -hmm. than others. Um, another really big one is just feedback in terms of a lot of coaches give very corrective feedback. And that's not necessarily wrong in some sports, like swimming is a sport where you need a lot of corrective feedback. And it can start to feel as the athlete, like all you're being, like your coach is only telling you you're doing things wrong. But it's a lot of fine tuning of like, you know, even just like, oh, the angle of where your pinky entered the water is not quite right. And like, it helps you be a better swimmer, but at times it starts to become a lot as the athlete. So helping coaches find the balance and giving feedback that's correction, correct, correctional, corrective, or is it hard today? Um, well, you know, have, have coaches doing that, but then also even just giving like motivational, positive, like, and even just like reinforcement. And again, letting them know that like you see them, you see that they're working hard, um, you see the effort that they're showing up with. And that's a whole like growth mindset conversation about effort <laughs> uh, way more than other things. But there's there, it's like, I feel like with coaches a little bit can go such a long way with just that relationship and impact. That's so great that you brought that up from a coach's standpoint, because I think that's something, especially with that like repetitive, you know, critique. I do both in-person and online coaching. And so a lot of times when I hear from my athletes that are remote, it's only when something's going wrong and they're, they send me a video and they're like, this just didn't feel right. And so I constantly feel like 
my feedback to them is like, oh, well, you didn't do this or you did this too early or, you know, not enough here. And I, I have to like really watch myself in that in that online remote coaching uh, manner because it can easily get to where you're like nitpicking every little thing. But on the con on the, on the flip side, when I'm in person coaching, um, I notice that athletes want me to have something to correct every single rep. And sometimes I've seen so many reps from them that I'm just like, do it again. Like you just need the practice. Like that was fine. It wasn't perfect, but it's nothing new. Like I don't need to give you a specific cue every single time. Sometimes it's just about doing it, feeling it and continuing to do it. And sometimes I feel like athletes will look at me and they're like, anything? Did that look okay? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And, and, and they give me that look like, okay, but was it? And I'm like, was it perfect? No. But was it fine? Yes. Like keep going. The only way you're going to get better is to just keep doing it. Like keep diving into the water, keep, you know, every yeah. single rep will get better. And so sometimes from a coaching perspective, I'm very mindful of how many corrective cues I'm giving or how many critiques I'm giving, especially in a given session. And then how that changes based on how I'm interacting with the athlete, whether it be in person or virtual. So, you know, as athletes, be mindful that sometimes your coach is just like, good job, thumbs up, keep going. And that's because that's what it is. That's what the feedback is about. Um, and so I think that's a really important distinction as well. Yeah, I do want to jump in with something else really quickly with that is when we give corrective feedback, it's it typically is very specific. Mm-hmm. And when we give reinforcement, it tends to be very vague. And that's where sometimes I'm wondering if your athletes are like, if you said, Hey, you did like this specific thing well, and even just letting them know instead of like, Hey, that looked fine. Or that looked great. But being able to just be like, Oh, like your shoulders were back or something that's good of a very clear that can go a really long way as well. Cause when we're used to it being very specific of like, again, like, Oh, like adjust the angle of where your pinky's entering the water. And then the next piece is like, Nope, that looked good. Sometimes it's hard for us to know like, well, what part looked good. So the more specific we can be in giving that feedback, they tend to know, oh, like this specific thing was good. Let me keep doing that, that over and over again, instead of like big picture. Great work. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. I didn't think about that. I mean, that's really great. And as far as communicating, like communication is a big thing in coaching any sport, like regardless, but like how you communicate and what you're communicating is, is so important. So that's really great. And I, and I hope that, you know, I will definitely take that, but, and I, and I hope other people can hear that as well and take that. Um, I want to transition to in the heat of the moment in competition, it's race day, it's performance day. Um, you talk a lot about performance anxiety. Could you share what that is? Yeah. So, I would say that it's a little bit more before the performance than during it. Typically it tends to be like in the some amount of time leading up to it, whether that's like the week before the night before the morning of for some people with like longer performances. Like I know some of my Ironman athletes, they might have it like a month before, like sometimes the bigger, the more daunting the thing, um, the, the earlier out we're getting that anxiety, but it's, it's really like a form of just your fight or flight response and just general, like I'm feeling nervous about this. Um, I tend to explain it to people like you have a sweet spot for where your performance is at its best physically, mentally, emotionally, all of that, like it can be at its best. Um, but when our amount of nerves is too high and we are like too activated, 
it starts to become detrimental. So like a lot of people will talk about how it's good, it's fine, it's you know not a problem to be nervous. Nerves mean your care, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. There is a point at which you essentially have too many nerves and it starts to become detrimental and it's gonna negatively impact that performance. Um, so for, in terms of like for athletes, whether they're talking about like being super nervous, being anxious, having anxiety, like a lot of those things, like what you call it doesn't necessarily matter a ton, but it's more the experience that you're having beforehand where like, it's basically the amount of nerves you have is just, it's too much. And that's where like, you're like, I don't even want to go. I feel like I'm going to throw up. I like, I'm feeling dread. I'm super shaky. Um, and some of these things, like I know before I've raced before, like I get a little jittery and it's super not specific, but like, there's a point at which I'm like, all right, like I'm a little jittery. It's fine. There's another point at which I'm like, this is too much. And it's very hard to like quantify what that is. And it's very specific to everybody, but it starts to just be like, this is a very miserable experience. I don't want to have this anymore. And the more that you do have that like race anxiety, the less you want to go to races or performance or like whatever that is, because it's just so negative. Mm -hmm. um, your focus tends to be impacted by it as well. And that's again, like just a fight or flight response. Like there's a lot of things that are not, not necessarily your own doing. It's just your brain is detecting some form of a threat. The threat is the performance. It's essentially a threat to your ego, not necessarily a threat to your physical well-being like it once was. Um, but it's just a threat to like your ego and how you see yourself. And so your brain's determining this thing is not necessarily safe and it's giving you this response. And there's again, a point at which like having, like being a little bit jittery can actually help you run faster. Uh, it can help you lift more. Like the adrenaline can be a very good thing, but there, there's a tipping point where it's just, it's just too much and it's not not going to work well for you. <laughs> you, you can work to overcome it for sure. That's not to say like you're doomed. Sorry. Like it's, it's not like that, but it can be a very unpleasant thing to experience. Yeah. There's a couple different theories out there about anxiety or about, um, arousal, arousal theories mm -hmm. and, and how yeah, about yeah. response response to them. Um, and I, I think that's a really important one because I've, I've had athletes who, they they seem underwhelmed by the idea of competition and you're like hey are you even awake like are you are you excited right. are you are you anything in there and then i have some athletes where i'm like can you sit down can you can you bring it down a notch and so finding that sweet spot like you said to where you're amped up enough to where the the arousal is going to help and promote positive performance but not to the point where it becomes detrimental to the performance and i think that's up to each individual athlete to really understand but when they do get to that point where it is too much you said it's not like a lost cause how do they how do they address that how how can they address that going into their competition or their performance yeah so what i typically do will have athletes look at one of their best performances as well as one of their worst performances and i'll have them write out like one, some of just like the tangibles, like where were you? What were you doing? What type of race or performance was this? Um, but then start to look at like, where was your mindset at? What were your thoughts? What, um, maybe what types of like physiological responses did you have? And start to get really clear on what each looks like so that you can get better at recognizing when you're going towards 
having that anxiety because it builds. It doesn't tend to just like show up. It can feel like it, but it tends to be building over time and it's being built by what your thoughts are. So if you're like, I'll have athletes. I have someone who's racing an Ironman at the end of July and it's July 6th, I think. And she's already like, I'm going to be so nervous. And so that might not cause that race anxiety now, but if she spends the next month telling herself that she's going to be nervous, she's slowly building up one, the belief that she will be, but like the more she's telling herself that's becoming stronger. Mm-hmm. And it's just over time, those things start to slowly build. And if you're able to recognize what the thoughts are that lead to anxiety, but also what some of the physiological symptoms are in their like early stages, if you will, you can do something about it before it becomes but like there's a point at which it is really really hard to get yourself out of like race anxiety like if it's the morning of and it's right before and you're really really freaking out it is very hard because there's so much of a physiological response Um, again not to say you can't do anything but I really really harp on people like the more you can be proactive about it the better it's a lot easier, but things like using breath work and just diaphragmatic breathing can be super helpful. Grounding exercises of even just identifying things around you, whether it's like five things that you can touch, you can smell, you can probably not taste, but like just <laughs> things around you, like what you, you based on like the situation and where you're at, or even just being able to like, if you're like, I can taste my Gatorade or I can taste my water and I can feel the ground underneath me and I can feel the clothes on my back. And like sometimes just grounding exercises can help when your brain is freaking out. Um, but again, it's it's going to be a lot easier to do something about it earlier and be intentional of like, okay, this is where my thought, these are where my thoughts are. And this is where I'm at. Where do I want to be? What thoughts do I want to be having? And you might not completely buy in and believe them yet, but that's where you want to work towards getting. If you just do nothing, you're going to keep having that same negative like result and experience. That's interesting. Um, thank you so much. Cause I think number one, I think the word anxiety is used uh, too fluidly. Um, but I also know that it's a real thing when it comes to, to competition and performance. Um, so I think that will be very useful to listeners to really have some tangibles that they can grab grab onto uh, when they may be experiencing those those um, different levels of arousal going into to competition. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time here. We've gotten so much um, covered in this short amount of time. I have one final question before I you know turn it over to you to share you know what you have going on and how people can reach you. So I have a little game. Um, questions are numbered one through 15. And each question corresponds to, or each number corresponds to a question. Um, So I'm gonna give you any number one through 15, but there are five questions gone. So are you ready for them? Number two, number seven, number five, number 14, and number three. Two, seven, five, 14, and three are gone. Okay. Pick any number one through 15. I'll go with four. Four. All right, Shannon. Question number four is in less than 10 words, describe the mental aspects of the perfect athlete. Perfect athlete. 
what does that athlete have? There is no perfect athlete. Okay. <laughs> okay. That was easy. That was easy. If you, yeah. could get, if you could get close, what, I guess, what would be something super important yeah. for a high level elite Olympian? Yeah. What, what would those, what would that mental skill be? The one that's coming to mind most right now is adaptable. Okay. Actually, I think I would need a little bit more time, but I would think confident. I would think adaptable, resilient. Okay. Those all sound really good. Those all <laughs> sound really good. I know those are tough questions. They're, they're really random, like softball types of questions. But <laughs> I really just wanted to throw at people, but um, adaptable is really great. And I think any athlete, regardless of what sport, if you're trying to be at the, the best level of performance and you're competing against the unknown, being adaptable is, is definitely up there on that list, um, for, for, you know, how to be the best athlete and be at the best. Um, Shannon, where can people find you? What do you have going on and, and how people, how can people connect with you? Yeah. So the easiest way to connect with me is on Instagram. Um, my handle is a little complicated because it's my last name, um, but it's at Mulcahy Performance. So I will give the very brief backstory that I chose that name, um, which I know is very hard to spell in like a terribly bad business decision, but it's my last name from my dad who's passed away. So it's like very important to me that I keep it. So sorry for everyone who can't spell it. I recognize it's very hard to remember, um, but it's Mulcahy Performance on Instagram. My website is www.mulcahyperformance.com. So everything's pretty streamlined there. Um, I would love to connect with anybody on Instagram in general. Um, but if you have like questions or anything, that's probably the easiest way to just get like post requests. I tend to like to say, Hey, what do you want to see? And I'll just create resources for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in terms of working with athletes, teams, coaches, I have one-on-one -on -one services for athletes, not just endurance athletes, although that is what like it's marketed a little bit more towards. I still see athletes in a very wide variety of sports. Um, I have a few different tiers for working with me. So that might be something um, like look over it, see which would be a good fit for you. I have a sports psychology course that I created for coaches exclusively to help them one, understand the basics of sports psychology, but then also be able to apply what those basics are. Because a lot of the information out there is either confusing, incorrect, or you just don't know what to do with it. So it takes the education and helps you apply it in your work with athletes. And then for teams, organizations, I do a lot of like speaking engagements and workshops where team just says, hey, like this is what's going on. This is what we'd like some help with. And I put together something, I come on out or just do it over Zoom. And it's a great way to get some mental performance training for a larger group of individuals. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Shannon. And I will make sure that I get Mulcahy Performance tagged in the show notes of this episode. So they will have it and they can just click. Um, again, I really, really appreciate you being on the show. I enjoyed speaking with you and I look forward to releasing this episode. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Before you sign off, if this episode was helpful for you, I'd love to hear from you. Be sure to take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review. 
and then share with your other strong friends. If you're looking for more podcast episodes or content on fitness, nutrition, sport performance, or if you just want to connect with me for coaching, you can head on over to my website, optimizestrength.co, or follow me on Instagram at PhD. I'd love to hear from this community. If there are topics you want to hear about or guests you'd like to hear from, drop me a note. Until next time, may your squats be strong and your lifts be big. Here's to going beyond the reps and getting to the strength in the details.